How do you feel about a little time travel? Does that sound interesting to you at all? Anybody interested in a little time travel? Because today on the pod, I'm going to take you back in time, but only like three weeks, so don't get too freaked out. Hey everybody, Todd Conklin, Free Accident Podcast. Hello, how are you? I'm sorry we're in the middle of all this. I feel so bad for people like like kids in school, people starting their careers, people between jobs, people who lost jobs. The empathy I have for you guys is 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 poignant. I mean, I really there's a depth to how I feel because I just read I just read this recently that the pandemic is going to have a larger social effect than World War II, which is remarkable to me. At a, It's almost unbelievable. I mean, it, the details are out. There was one person's theory for sure. But it's, it's clearly impacting things at a depth that I think is becoming kind of interesting. And we probably should talk about this a little bit um, because I think it's worthwhile talking about. Today's podcast is is a little, I don't even know if I'm supposed to, I think I can do this because it's my voice. So I think I'm okay with it. But a couple weeks ago, they had the, the human and organizational performance conference, which was actually scheduled way earlier, like in the middle of the podcast, going to be a live conference in Houston, big party, lots of fun. And of course, you know what happened. All conferences got canceled. They actually moved this Lisa Brooks and, and, uh, and and company and Jim and the whole gang, Jim Frederick, um, they moved the conference to virtual and did it uh, in January. And so I thought it would be really interesting to take a moment or two and uh, let you sneak a listen to what you missed if you weren't there. So I, I, I gave a speech there and I was really fortunate in that I got to share the podium with David Payne, who's the, the, Senior Vice President for Health and Safety at Chevron. And so we split up our time. I haven't actually, uh, I, I, I'm not going to play David Payne's speech because I don't think I can because um, it's not me. And I, you'd have to probably get it cleared through his company and all that kind of stuff as well. But I picked up where I left off, and I wanted you to kind of get a feel for the tone of how cool this meeting was. It, they did a really good job. And the best way I thought to do that would be to just let you listen to the part of what I talked about, because uh, not that I, I don't think I was the highlight by any stretch of the imagination. And there were some great people at this conference, but, but I had access to this because, because it's my stuff. It came from my house and, and it does kind of set the tone for the way the conference was thinking, which, which I actually think is kind of tied into how we started the podcast that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty and that the world's not going to be the same. And I think we know that now. I mean, we, we understand that we're in the midst of this experiment, so we get it. And what does that mean for us as we move forward? And, and that is really the conversation that we're going to have. And I think you'll, I think you'll like it. I mean, it's kind of fun. It's a, it's a great way to think about it. And so I'm going to just play my little clip of my kickoff little speech and you can get a feel for what it's like. And just thanks for being there. So if you sent questions in for the question and answer pod, we sure have gotten a lot of them. So thank you. Uh, there's always room for more. Maybe you'll have the best question ever and no one's asked it yet. 
So try to pump that in if you can. If not, keep moving forward, you guys. Keep moving forward. One foot in front of the other. Paso e paso. Keep moving forward. That'll make a big difference to how we sort of survive. I miss you. I can't wait to see you again. But until then, remind yourself of how much we like each other by listening to this little presentation from the 2021 Human and Organizational Performance Conference. So I'm super psyched to be here because, well, it's the HOP Conference, and I'm glad we got it kicked off the ground. And it's always fun to follow my friend David and the success stories they tell because that journey's been a really interesting journey to watch. I want to talk to you about um, really this idea of human performance in the midst of uncertainty. And that's a big part of what we want to kind of tackle because the world that we live in, well, it's a different world. And it's obvious by the fact that this hop conference is being held the way it's being held. But to do that, I think I really need to probably start with a story. No pressure, but Lisa sort of played the story thing up a little more than I wanted it to be because now I have to actually meet the test. And it's a story maybe you haven't heard, but it's a story that I think is a pretty good origin story for where we're going to be for the next couple days on our hop discussion. And this story involves the fact that that I spent a lot of time early, early, early in my life working at a big summer camp. Um, And it's a really fun place. It's a place called Philmont, if you've not heard of it. it. It's a really great place to work. And there's about, when I was there, there's about 800 people that work there between the age of um, 18 and probably 25. And we would get together a lot and have fun because it was a great place to be. And that's an awful lot of fun people to hang out with. And one of the things we used to like to do was go to a nearby town that um, uh, I think the statute of limitations is over that allowed the purchasing of beer uh for people who look to be old enough. And that's probably all I should say because I don't want to get into a whole lot of trouble. And one Friday night, we decided to go to this place. It was a really interesting place. It's probably exactly what you manage. It was a drive through laundromat and beer store. Um, this was a long time ago. And so the idea of a drive through beer store is pretty controversial, but not nearly as controversial as drive through laundromat. That is controversial. And there were four of us, and we were going to go up to this this drive-through laundromat and uh, and acquire a purchase. And so we went in a vehicle that was owned by a guy named Bob Wood. And Bob Wood was a a, a kind of a a Western United States dude. He he grew up in the, the great state of uh, Texas, if I believe that was correct. And he drove a really interesting vehicle. He drove a VW Bug that had a Baja kit. If you don't know what a Baja kit is, it might be worth Googling right there at your desk, but it's basically like they take a VW and turn it into a dune buggy, but they leave the top on, so it's still covered. It's it's not a convertible, but they kind of put the fenders up, and it, it, was blue, it was blue, and we drove to the place where the drive-through laundromat, and there were four of us in the vehicle, and it was about a 30-minute drive, about probably 15 miles up a canyon in the mountains. And we were going from about 6,500 feet to about 9,000 feet. So it's, it's kind of an uphill drive the whole way. And that little vehicle, that little Baja Volkswagen Beetle, was working as hard as it could to get up there. We got to the drive through laundromat, acquired our purchase, laundry, of course. 
and we turned around to come back home. Now, even back then, the idea of drinking and driving was wrong at every level, so we weren't really imbibing in anything. We were just driving back down this canyon. We were going from about 9,000 feet back down to 6,000 feet in about 15 miles, half hour. So we're going kind of down this canyon, zigzagging, moving on the road, sort of cutting in and out. There's four of us in the vehicle. We're listening to uh, um, country music as loud as we can and laughing. That's what you're supposed to do. That's the right age. And about a third of the way on that trip, Bob hit the brakes on that VW Bug really hard, jammed it into reverse, and backed up on the, on the road. And he, he, he stopped the vehicle, left the headlights on, and he jumped out, opened up the front hood. I believe in England they would call it the bonnet, but he opened up the front hood of the Volkswagen Beetle. And if you're familiar with Volkswagen Beetles, the motor's in the back. That's the boot, right? The front hood is where you hold the... Well, I don't know. You don't hold very much inside a Volkswagen Beetle. But he reached in and got a golf club, walked out onto the road, and picked up a big rattlesnake with this golf club. And he held it up in front of the headlights, and he looked at us in the vehicles. I was sitting in the front seat. And he said, it's perfect. It doesn't even look like it's been run over. Now, Bob used to make snake skin hat bands and belts because he kind of grew up in that part of the world and so he knew how to do that stuff and he was constantly looking for what they affectionately call in the business roadkill so he picks up this giant snake and he says it doesn't even look like it's been run over it's perfect and i said through the open window we'll make sure it's dead and he said oh don't worry it's dead and he comes in the vehicle and he drops the snake on the floorboard of the driver's side of that volkswagen and jumps back in and we continue to go back down this canyon and we've got about another 20 minutes to go and we're singing pretty loud because we're listening to music in fact if i remember this correctly and i do we were singing smoky mountain rain uh, a ronnie Millsap song if you don't know it and um volkswagens are very interesting vehicles because the heating system in volkswagen bugs um back in the day was kind of cut and and dry it was either on or it was off and it was usually on when you didn't want it to be on and off when you really needed it this is the middle of the summer so we didn't need a lot of heat but the heat was working really well because we're coming down that canyon and the floorboard of that volkswagen was really hot it was so hot it was kind of difficult to put your feet straight down on the floor you had to kind of lift them up and push them up towards the front and we're driving down the canyon, and I turn and look at Bob. He's driving this little blue beetle, and his feet are on the dashboard of the VW. Now, I want you to think about this in kind of a Cirque du Soleil fashion because the dashboard of a VW is right there, and so his feet were kind of right up next to his head. And I said, what are you doing? Thinking the entire time that the floorboard of the Volkswagen was too hot to put his feet down, but he turned to me and said, the snake is alive. And I said, what? And he said, that snake is alive. And I looked down, and the snake was coiled up on the floorboard of this Volkswagen Beetle underneath where Bob was sitting, and it was striking at the seat that he was sitting atop of. Now, this is kind of a freaky experience because there are four adult guys in a vehicle coming back from a drive-through laundromat beer store 
singing Ronnie Millsap Smoky Mountain Rain as loud as they can with a gigantic live rattlesnake striking the seat that the driver is upon. And you would think that's a big enough problem because that seems like enough of a problem. Except that I want you to remember we're going down this canyon and we're going down about 3,000 feet in 11 miles. And now we're going down a canyon in a vehicle that has no brakes because the snake has secured the place where the brakes are. And so we're going a little faster and a little faster and a little faster. And eventually it becomes pretty serious. And the guys in the back think this is hilarious because they're pretty much separated away from the risk or so they think, but I'm kind of starting to freak out because I'm not the biggest fan of snakes and I'm really not the biggest fan of snakes when they're angry. And I'm totally not the biggest fan of snakes when they're angry and in a vehicle next to me on the floorboard of the driver's seat while we're going down a canyon with no brakes. And so Bob reaches down and grabs the emergency brake and pulls it. And I don't know how much you guys know about these Volkswagen Beetles, but the emergency brake at best is kind of symbolic. And it doesn't really do much. And eventually the canyon about halfway kind of levels out. There's a big meadow in the middle of it. And at that level out place, we start to go up and down the side of the road. And each time we'd go up, we'd lose some speed and then lose a little more speed and then lose a little more speed. And finally, we got to the place where the vehicle was going slow enough that I opened the door and jumped out, just like on the old TV show Starsky and Hutch. I kind of rolled around on the grass, but it didn't matter because I was out of the vehicle in which there was a snake. Bob finally got the Volkswagen stopped, and he jumped out. And now the guys in the back that thought everything was really funny, they're not thinking it's as funny as it used to be because now they're trapped in there. Bob reaches around and finds a big rock, and he tosses the rock really hard onto the floorboard of the vehicle, I think with the intention of incapacitating the snake. But unfortunately, he completely misses the snake, and now the snake's really mad. So we wait a while. The guys in the back now aren't laughing at all. And when the snake finally calms down a little bit, Bob reaches in, grabs the snake, puts it on the grass, and lets it slide away. My heart was beating like a rabbit. I'm sure Bob's heart was beating like a rabbit. I know the two guys in the back of the vehicle were just as freaked out as I was. We all get back in the vehicle, shut the door, and start to take off to go home. It's really quiet in the vehicle. And Bob turns to me and he says, that's the second time that's happened to me. Now I tell you that story because I think that's a pretty important part of how we think about that story. Because this idea that Bob didn't learn, that's the second time that's happened to me. Because I don't know about you guys, but that seems like a kind of a one per lifer. That failure to learn, as Andrew Hopkins calls it, that's an important part of sort of the theme of how we think about human performance in organizations really around the globe. And I want to start with this idea that the most important thing we do as we manage programs throughout our industries in human and organizational performance is really improve the organization's ability to learn. And that's exactly what, what David Payne said, is that we get better when we understand that learning 
is more important than fixing. It's not that both aren't important because they're really important. But this idea that we learn is fundamental to what we want to do. And what human performance has done for us is really allowed us to learn differently. And, and that's what we want to talk about. But to set that theme, I think we have to recognize first and foremost that the future, the thing that we try to manage by predicting, the thing that we're desperately seeking leading data for, the future ahead of us is uncertain. And that seems kind of serious and ominous, especially today, especially in the midst of a giant pandemic and global justice crisis and political unrest and all the things that are happening to us that sort of created the need to do this conference via a bunch of Zoom and WUVA. What's that thing called? WUVA? The, the, the system that we're using to do this conference. And this idea that the future is uncertain, that's kind of a scary idea. But I think I bring some comforting information. And the comforting information I bring to you is that no matter how scary the idea that we don't know what will happen next is, the future has always been uncertain. Now, you have to think about this idea that really we live in a world filled with uncertainty. And we work in a part of our industry, in a part of our organization, where what we want to manage is the ability to sort of reliable, reliably have the future. And that challenge is a big part of how we think about and how we move forward in understanding the work we do. And that, to a great extent, I think is the advantage that this new renaissance, if we can use the quote from N-S-C-O-R-C-H-S-E, that is a lot of letters all in one list. I was pretty impressed by that. This quote that, that the world ahead of us is uncertain. And that uncertainty is a part of what we move forward. And I guess the good news I bring to you, even though I'm thinking it's not that comforting, is that I'm not sure this is any different than it was before all these crises happened. It's that the crises have sort of made the work we do more meaningful. And let me own that for you guys, because I think it's important to set the theme as we progress through the next couple of days of this conference. And that is the world is changing and we live in a changing world. And we live in a world that historically, if you think about it, has really told us that our job is to help optimize efficiency. Right, So when we think about managing the business, we think about the idea of efficiency, of better, faster, cheaper. And I'm not sure there's anything wrong with better, faster, cheaper. I mean, we could talk about it a long time. But ultimately, we want to provide more value so that the business succeeds. And the way we've thought about that traditionally, at least before everything started changing, was that we make the business better at doing the business. And that really is the definition of this notion of efficiency. But if you saw the title for my presentation, which says basically, what do we do when all the stuff we've been talking about suddenly is relevant, and that is kind of where we are in this conversation, we know now that the world changed. And where once our organization's we're highly aligned towards creating operational efficiency. 
Now what we're starting to hear in the management team meetings, in the senior leadership huddles, in the boardrooms of our organization, is a discussion now about the idea of optimizing towards resilience. And what's remarkable about that is that that is the conversation that we, you and me, because it's just the two of us, right? That's the conversation we've been having for a long time with our organizations when we talk about human performance. Because what human performance allows us to do is build in capability, capacity. That's a word I use all the time. And that capacity is there not to create efficiency. That capacity is there in order to create tolerance, in order to create margin, in order to create the ability to have variations in protocols and processes and the way work is done. Now, I'm not sure efficiency will go away. I mean, and we can talk to Dave about that because he really represents sort of that senior leadership level. I always think we're going to need to be efficient because that's really how our businesses survive. But I now think we're in a position where suddenly capability, resilience, tolerance, those words we use all the time, they have reached a new pinnacle of importance. And my suggestion to you guys, and it'd be curious to see what you think, is that that probably makes our jobs a little easier, not harder, a little easier because these are things we've talked about building into the system for as long as we've been talking about human performance. When we talk about the fact that people make mistakes, it's not the mistakes that are interesting. In fact, I would suggest the mistakes aren't very interesting at all. It's the fact that we build processes, we write procedures, we create instructions, we design facilities knowing that people are going to mess up and we create enough capability in that process so that when they do mess up, it's recoverable. And that, that idea of recoverability, that's really what we bring to the table. And that's a part of this journey. And this renaissance into safety differently, well, that's a really interesting part of the discussion that we've had. And what's amazing for those of you that have been on this journey a good long time, and there's a bunch of us in this conference that have been on this journey a while, it's amazing to me how this idea of human performance has really caught more and more and more attention and is starting to align itself pretty nicely with the way we do work. Our challenge, and it is our challenge, is to understand at a fundamental level that tomorrow's organization is not going to look like last year's organization. And that's okay because the world has changed quite dramatically. And so we ought to really look at sort of the future discussions. And the future discussions are going to allow us as leaders in reliability in our organization to quickly gain some new ability. It's really not just leaders for HOP, but leaders for entire organizations. And there are really four things that I think are worth noting as we progress on through this conference. The first requirement is that leaders are going to have to now make early decisions based upon smaller data sets 
and understanding that one of the most important capabilities that they have is the agility that exists in their workforce. You know how people say, that's not a bug, it's a feature? That's exactly what's changed. We used to see shortcuts as a bug. Now what we're understanding is that what they really are are representations of capacity for agility and adaption that exists in the field. And we know that because for a great amount of time this year, the workforce has been split up between this really weird and kind of strangely classist division between essential workers and non-essential workers. I think David Payne called it button-down shirt and fire-retardant clothing. It's the same division, right? Frederick Taylor would call it workers and planners. What's interesting is that we used to think the adaptive nature that the worker brought to the field was a hazard. That was shortcutting or creating efficiencies or going around the rules or breaking a cardinal sin. But then when things got tough and we divided the haves from the have-nots, we realized that our companies pretty much operate on the ability for workers at every level of the organization to be agile in their response to variability. So future leaders have to understand that data is going to come to them differently and that this agility, right, this shortcutting or process improving or real-time problem solving or sense-making is actually a benefit. Second skill area that I think is worth noting, diversity of opinion is incredibly vital. When systems are under incredible amounts of ambiguity or uncertainty or chaos, pick the name, they're all kind of the same. The tendency is to believe that you would be less diverse in gathering information in order to be more efficient and more effective. But here's what we know. The more uncertainty that is present in the future, the more you need a diverse assortment of opinion. And I think Hop has helped us understand this because we've been talking for years about the fact that expertise organizationally lives at every level of the organization. There are expert performers at every single level of your organization, and they're incredibly valuable as uncertainty raises its head. The third one, we're in a world where we have to temporarily trade short-term certainty for long-term stability, one day at a time. I sort of added that on that slide. And I would tell you from a hop framework, that's not very scary to us because we've understood the power of prototyping. We've understood the power of micro-experimenting. We've understood the power of going out and trying things in the field in order to gather data quickly. And then realizing that if the data is good, we replicate what we just tried as far as we can in the organization. But if the data is bad, if it fails, if it didn't work, we erase it as quickly as we possibly can. And the last skill that you're going to be required to have, or, or a skill that's changed for leadership really in the midst of HOP and the work we do, is monitor your organization's capacity to learn. Now, for years, Carl Weick and Carlene Roberts and Kathleen Sucklick 
and Todd Laporte and David Woods. He's going to be coming up, right? Don't miss that one. That's going to be incredible. They've talked about sort of the pillars of reliability, and one of them's always been this notion of monitoring. And, and monitoring is really interesting because I always, in my brain, sort of made it synonymous with measuring. But what the pandemic has taught us is that, in fact, they're not synonyms. That the difference between measuring your organization's capacity to learn and monitoring your organization's capacity to learn is pretty significant. And and I want you to think about it like this. This is kind of oversimplified. But measurements tell us what has happened. Monitoring tells us what's happening. And so measurements have always been retrospective and lagging. This is the big challenge in safety and has been for years and years and years and years. And that is we're looking for leading data. Well, one of the things that these guys have tried to been teaching us for the last 30 years is that as long as we're in love with the idea of measuring things, then we're always going to be looking at things that have happened. But monitoring the organization's ability to learn looks at the present state and asks this question, are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Are we staying the same? And so suddenly monitoring becomes a very powerful way to think about what's happening. Ultimately, the journey we're on is really an important journey. But it's only important if we learn from what's happening. I never want to be in a Volkswagen Baja bug going down Cimarron Canyon and have you turn to me and say, that's the second time I've put a large live rattlesnake on the floorboard of my car and it's woken up because the floorboard is so hot and gotten angry and I've almost died and wrecked the car. Never say that to me twice. So absence of crisis, what do we need? Well, you're going to hear this a lot at this conference because it's a big part of what we talk about. But what HOP does is it allows us to build resilience into our systems, the right side of the bow tie, because prevention alone is not enough insists, maybe I should make this stronger, it demands that we collect a diversity of information. We listen to people at every level of the organization because the management conference room is not the smartest place in the company. The third thing is that we have to replace the word fix in our vocabulary with the word learn. We're not getting rid of the word fix. We're still going to fix problems. But right now, what we really want to do is get better at collecting data and learning. Fourthly, build relationships across the organization, within other organizations, within your industry, and globally, just like you are now in the HOP conference, as a strategy towards being successful. The most important resource we have in getting our organizations to be better is us. And then last but not least, monitor. Monitor, monitor, monitor our capacity to learn. Ultimately, what we do in HOP is we identify problems early so that we have the capability, the capacity to really manage the consequence of the inevitable failures that are going to happen in the way we do work. 
when we wait for the event to get large, when we wait for the accident to happen, look what happens to our capacity. And remember, if you don't have the preparatory capability, you can't create it in time to use it. What we do is build capacity into systems. What HOP does is help management understand that people make mistakes and that blame fixes nothing and that learning is vital and that context dictates behavioral outcomes and that management's response matters. For us, safety is not the absence of accidents. For us, safety is the presence of capacity. What HOP does is move our discussion from safety as an outcome to safety as a capability. And that's what I want you to think about as you progress through these next three days. I want you to think about the world that you're coming from and the world you're going into. And I want you to understand, because it's okay, that they're incredibly different and that that uncertainty that is ahead of us is normal. And we can't manage uncertainty because we don't know how to predict what happens in the future. I mean, we're really bad at it. And if you don't believe that, just kind of look back over the last year. You suck at predicting the future. What we want to do is understand that what we can do and what HOP allows us to have conversations about within our organization is that what we build is really that predictive capability, that capacity to actually fail in a way where it's safe to move forward. That's the challenge that you have. In fact, that's exactly the work we want to do. I want you to have the best conference you can possibly squeeze into this kind of meeting. Gather as much information as you possibly can. Take a crap load of notes. But most importantly, understand we're all in this together. And I wish as much as anything we could be in the same place because that would be super fun. But we can't. So the next best thing is to create a community of thought together, all 800 of us, that helps us move forward successfully into an uncertain future. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope I hope that was a good use of your time. Just a little clip. I tried to cut it down a little. I, I In fact, I did cut kind of the middle boring stuff out a little because, you know, you got time. You got stuff to do. You're busy. You're a busy executive with busy executive things. That is the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Keep sending your questions in. I can't wait to do this question episode. It's actually becoming kind of fun. Seriously, kind of fun. So that's cool. Until then, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. Check in on one another, too. That's what I'm doing here with you guys right now. And for goodness sakes, be safe.